On April 3rd, 1968, 50 years ago this week, Martin Luther King Jr. was in Memphis giving a speech to sanitation workers who were on strike. This is what he said. He concluded the speech with this. He said, well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would love to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord as you may know, King was assassinated the next day, April 4th, 1968, at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. And this giant figure, this larger-than-life figure, who had such a huge impact, he spoke these words the night before he was assassinated. One of the major themes, I think, of his life, one of the themes of of the civil rights movement is very much related to what we're looking at here in Genesis 12 today. Talking about hope in desperate times. Talking about promises that come from outside of ourselves. Where do these promises come from? He mentioned it there, right? He said, we as a people, I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So he's talking about these promises of of people, these promises of land. And I think ultimately these promises, they come from God. They come from God and they come from his word and from the story that we read of God dealing with his people. We need to ask ourselves, are we relying on the promises of God? Or are we relying on self-preservation like we've been talking about? In Genesis, especially in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. And be reminded that the gospel is not just about preserving ourselves. It's not just about self and our own individual salvation. We need to understand our story in the bigger picture. We need to understand how we fit into the bigger story and what our place is in that story. And we've been rehearsing that gospel story. We've been seeing how Genesis points us to Christ We have looked at Genesis chapters 1 through 11 so far and call that the primeval history. We we saw the creation and the fall. We saw God destroy everything in the flood and then recreate everything. And a couple weeks ago we saw the Tower of Babel and how people tried to make a name for themselves. They tried to preserve themselves. And now we're going into that second section of Genesis. It's a big section. It's chapters 12 through 50. And it's called the patriarchal history. And it's going to follow the history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And begin to tell that story of God calling a people to himself. I know uh, 
when we started Genesis, I recommended to you the Bible Project videos uh, on Genesis. They're, they have two different videos. The one is chapters 1 through 11, and the second one is chapters 12 through 50. Those videos are fantastic. They do a really good job of kind of painting a picture of, of the whole storyline of these sections of the Bible. So, again, just want to encourage you uh, to check that out. But starting here in chapter 12, we're going to be introduced to a giant figure. We're going to be introduced to Abraham. He's, he's not only a, a towering figure in the biblical story here, he's really a towering figure in all of history. All three of the monotheist, monotheistic religions in the world trace their roots back to Abraham. Jews trace their roots back to Abraham. Christians trace their roots back to Abraham. And Muslims trace their roots back to Abraham. So there's, obviously there's something important about this man. There's something important about his life. And it's not just enough to, to have some lesson in comparative religions and just say, oh, well, that's nice. What, here's what they believe. Here's what they believe. Here's what they believe. We need to see what does the Bible tell us. What does the Bible tell us about Abraham, who he was, and why he is important? I think two big questions that we need to look at is, first, how does Abraham point us forward to Jesus? So how does the story about Abraham in the Old Testament point us forward to Jesus? And then second, how does the New Testament point back to Abraham and make sense of what he went through? Because if we only read the book of Genesis, we're left with a ton of questions. We still don't understand the importance of Abraham. But if we go to the New Testament and we begin reading, we, we're, our eyes are open to a lot of different things about Abraham. Abraham's name is mentioned 72 times in the New Testament. The only other person that's mentioned more in the New Testament is Moses. So Abraham is a huge figure in the biblical story. And I think this speaks to the, both the unity and the authority of Scripture, that the Bible is one grand narrative. It's telling one big story. It's not just this random collection of a bunch of stories of a bunch of people who were wandering around, and somebody came and put them all together. And we're going to see as we get into some of these New Testament passages how the New Testament authors, how Jesus fits this all together and why Abraham is important. And we're going to see that this whole story, really, it does point to one glorious center. It's the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the center. That's the glorious center of the whole Bible. And it, has, and it points us forward to a glorious future. So we're going we're gonna to start here in Genesis 12. Um, last week we were in Genesis 22. and we were, So we kind of jumped ahead to look at the idea of resurrection on Easter, the story of Abraham being called to sacrifice Isaac. But now we're kind of getting back uh, to the beginning here. In Genesis chapter 12 of the story of Abraham. And we need just a little bit of background. There is a little bit of background in chapter 11. There's some genealogies. And we are introduced to Abraham, to his father, uh, to his family. And we're told that Abraham, and this is in chapter 11, uh, verse 29, that he took a wife. Her name was Sarai. And then in chapter 11, verse 30, it says, Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. So that's we're introduced to Abraham and Sarah. And then it comes to chapter 12, and we're going to start reading in chapter 12, verse 1. It's on page 8 in the Pew Bibles, if you want to follow along. Genesis 12, 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, 
And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, at the oak of Morah. And at, at, the time, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country in the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this great story, this beginning of this story about the life of Abraham. As we look at his life, as we look at your call on him, Lord, would we see Christ? Would we see the glorious good news of the gospel and be changed by it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Abraham's journey here begins with a call, a call to go. Verse 1, the Lord appears to him and says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Notice the things there that it meant leaving behind. To go away from your country or land, to go away from your kindred, from your relatives, to go away from your father's house, to leave familiarity, to leave comfort, to leave security, and to go out and to trust God and to follow him. And this call came with some very specific promises. The first set of promises are in verses 2 and 3. We see that the Lord tells Abram, his name was Abram, later changed to Abraham. I'll just be saying Abraham for for sake of ease. But he tells Abraham that I will make you, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. So this first thing is a great nation. Well, how is someone going to become a great nation when he has no descendants, when he has no children, when his wife is barren? There's a great challenge here before Abraham. And then God says that I will make your name great. We saw in the Tower of Babel, right? We saw these two things. We saw the people gathering together, trying to build a city, right? Trying to build their own nation, trying to preserve themselves and protect themselves. And then we saw that they were trying to make their own name great. So this story here in Genesis 12 of God's call to Abraham is really just kind of a slap in the face of the people at Babel, saying, you guys tried to do it your own way. This is how, this is God's way. God calls this man who has no children, no descendants, and says, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to give you blessings. I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. 
these blessings, these things that God promised, they were also others-focused. We see that. I will bless you in verse 2 and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God didn't say, hey, Abraham, I'm just going to hook you up with all this cool stuff so you'll just have this really comfortable life. No, it's go out and be a blessing so that I can bless others through you. It was not about self-preservation like it was for the people at Babel. And then we see in verse 4 that Abraham obeys God. Verse 4, Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. So they go, they leave his father's house, they leave all these comforts, and they go out. They obey the Lord. Abraham and Sarah and Lot and all the people, all the possessions, they go and they follow the Lord. What does this look like for us in our lives, to obey God in this way? Now certainly it doesn't mean that you have to just pack up all your things, you need to sell all your possessions, you need to just move overseas, right? You need to go to these unreached people groups and these places. God might be calling you to do that. You don't have to do that to obey the Lord. You don't have to do that to obey his call. But we are called to lay down our lives, right? We are called to obey God in the hard things. I'm sure this was a very hard thing for Abraham to do. It was a hard call to follow. And I'm sure God is calling us all to step out in faith, right? To do hard things in our lives. So it's probably very different for all of us. But that idea of, of letting go of those things, of laying those things down, that is at the very heart of Christ, the Christian life. That's a, at the very heart of discipleship, at the very heart of following Jesus. I think there's a striking parallel between this call of Abraham and the great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples in Matthew 28 after Easter Sunday, after he rose from the dead. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The risen Lord said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's the same authority, the same God who called Abraham here in Genesis 12 to go to leave his father's land, to go out to a place that God would show him. And then Jesus said, go, right? Go and make disciples of what? All nations. What does God tell Abraham here? I will, make you, I will make of you a great nation. So this idea of a blessing to the nations, we see that paralleled in the Great Commission. And baptizing, teaching them, that's part of the, the blessing. And then the promise, Jesus says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age And I think that's a reminder that our success does not depend on us. The ability to fulfill the Great Commission does not depend on on what we can do. It rests on Jesus, the one who has all authority, the one who has promised to be with us always. And as we're going to see with Abraham, it's the same thing. It's not about Abraham's greatness. Go home tonight and keep reading the rest of chapter 12. (laughs) Keep reading reading the rest of the story of Abraham. You probably know many of them, but he's going to stumble. He's going to fall, right? He's going to disobey God and distrust God. But it's not about him. It's not about Abraham's obedience. It's about God's greatness and about God's call. 
So this first set of promises here about descendants, this had to be accomplished by the sovereign hand of God. Abraham and Sarah could not accomplish this on their own. Then we come to the second set of promises, the second specific promise we see in verse 7. It says in verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, The Lord appeared to Abram. And we talked about this last week with the uh, Genesis chapter 22. That word, that Hebrew word, ra'ah, that was used over and over throughout that story. It's the word that was used for provide, saying the Lord will provide. It was also the word that meant the Lord will see or the Lord will be seen. And it also means appear. So this idea of the Lord appearing carries with it the idea, the promise that God is the one who provides. The one who appears to Abraham is the one who provides, the one who keeps his promises. So Abraham sees the Lord here, and the Lord confirms the promise with his presence. We don't see the Lord in the same way that Abraham saw the Lord, but he is with us today, isn't he? He's with us in his word. He's with us through his spirit that lives inside of us. He's with us when we partake the Lord's Supper and we are united spiritually to him. We see him. He appears to us. I would encourage us, let us not read the Old Testament. Let us, let us not read about people like Abraham and Moses and David and say, well, I could never experience God like they did. You know, these mountaintop experiences that these saints had in the Old Testament. But how much more do we get to experience God through the risen Christ who dwells inside of us, who is with us, who has promised to be with us always to the end of the age. So what was the promise then in verse 7? The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. It's the second part of this twofold theme. We talked about this earlier on in Genesis. There's, there's this theme of, of seed or offspring and land, this, this seed and land idea that keep being repeated over and over with the people of Israel, this idea of, of offspring, the blessings of offspring, of land that they will possess. And here, the land that the Lord promises to give them is the land of Canaan. And this is going to play a prominent role in the unfolding of the Old Testament narrative. This wasn't a land of ease and comfort. Again, contrary to Babel, right? They're trying to build this city and protect themselves. Canaan was a place, it was literally at the crossroads of the ancient world. All the trade routes went through there. There were constantly people coming and going. It was not a safe place to be. It was not a place where Abraham probably said, hey, this is where I want to go and settle down, like when all these people are going to be warring and try to steal my stuff. It was a crazy place. But I think there's something very important about that place. It's that the whole world came there, right? God takes his chosen people and he places them in that place where the whole world is going to come and see who God is through his people. This, we've talked about this before, this idea of, of in the Old Testament, it was really focused on come and see. Come and see. Come to the temple, right? Come and see the people, see where they're worshiping. So this idea of place was very important. And we see a glimpse of that 
with Abraham here in verse 8. He goes to the, he moves on, he, second half of verse 8, it says, he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord there. So there's this idea of him establishing a place of worship. He establishes an altar, he calls upon the name of the Lord. And as the story goes on, there will be these altars that are built in all these different places. And it's a reminder of who God is. It's a reminder of the people's call to, to follow the Lord, to worship him. And then, again, the, the contrast with the New Testament, with the Great Commission, right? The gospel is going to, from that same area, the gospel is going to go out into all the world, right? Acts 1.8 Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So it's kind of a, it's a reversal of how things worked in the Old Testament. It was come and see. Now in the New Testament, it's go and tell, right? So the, the emphasis in the Old Testament was on the place. The emphasis in the New Testament is more on the people, right? God is sending out a people. And we're going to go and we're going to plant churches, right? We're going to meet in certain places, but it's no longer about the place, it's about the people of God. So you see these connections with Genesis 12, how God starts things with calling Abraham and the people of Israel, and you see the connection with the church being sent out. So that's, I think that's pretty awesome. So I hope you're starting to see some of the significance of, of what this means with Abraham, how, how our Christianity, how our Christian lives really come from this, how this is, we're informed from this story. And, and again, we've only looked at just this little bit here. We haven't even gotten to some of these New Testament passages that speak specifically about Abraham. So we see God's call to Abraham again mirrored in Jesus' great commission to his church through people and land and blessings, how those things are connected. And then we're going to look at three passages in the New Testament to show how the promise to Abraham, how these promises were fulfilled in Christ, and how we are the recipients of those promises. So if you have your pew Bible, first I'd invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. It's on page 973. Galatians 3, starting in verse 7. We're going to look at Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Again, that's on page 973. And just before this, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is reminding the Galatians. He's saying, you received the Holy Spirit by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. You didn't begin this Christian life by doing good works. It was by faith. Then we pick up in verse 7. He says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I love this. In verse 8, it says, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. The gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So this idea of God's blessing coming to all people, that message started to become very clear here in Genesis 12, that the the gospel would go out and would spread and would go to all people and to all nations. Well, so what was that gospel? Was it 
oh, so God's going to, you know, if you believe God, he's going to hook you up with descendants. He's going to hook you up with land. Is this some prosperity gospel? Like, you're just going to be rich like Abraham? Like, you're going to have all these herds and all these cattle? No, not at all. Again, the focus is on it going out to all nations, to being a blessing to all the nations. Those Jew and Gentile barriers, like we talked about in Ephesians chapter 2, those barriers are broken down in Christ, and now the gospel goes out to the world. And this really is the miracle of Christianity. This is the miracle of the gospel, that not only does God reconcile individual people to himself, he can reconcile people like the Jews and the Gentiles who hated each other to himself and to each other in Christ. There's nothing else in the world that does that, or I think even claims to do it. That is the uniqueness, the beauty of the gospel, and the beauty of what Christ has done for us. And we see this even more clearly in our next passage. You can turn to Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 8. In the Pew Bibles, it's page 1007. It's at the very bottom right corner. So Hebrews 11, you probably know the the hall of faith, right? The list of all these great saints in the Old Testament and all the things they did. We're going to see here that the promises of descendants and land were full of much more meaning than they appeared to be in the Old Testament with just the physical realities of of people and, and land. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 8, I'll read through verse 16. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I love the language here related to land in this passage Verse 10, it says that they were looking forward to the city that has foundations, which designer and builder is God. Verse 13, they considered themselves as strangers and aliens in the earth. Verse 14, they were talks about the people seeking a homeland. And then verse 16, seeking a better country, a heavenly one, and a city from God. Again, this is all contrary to the Tower of Babel, right? It's saying we're not trying to build this city on earth for ourselves. We're trusting the Lord. We're trusting him for the future place, our future dwelling place. Our identity ultimately isn't that we are residents of Oshkosh, Wisconsin, or that we're residents 
of the United States. We're strangers and exiles here on the earth. Our true home is in heaven. And even Abraham, way back in chapter 12 of Genesis, that was the reality, even though maybe he didn't fully understand that. That is the reality for the people of God. Verse 11 there spoke of the miracle of Sarah conceiving and believing in the promises of God. And that's kind of the main theme, this idea of people of the last passage that we're going to look at. So you can turn to Romans chapter 4, verse 13. It's on page 941 if you're using the Pew Bible. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our, just, our trespasses and raised for our justification. God gives life to the dead And calls into existence things that do not exist. If you are a Christian today, that is your story. God called you when you were dead. He called you to life. You, in a sense, did not exist, right? I mean, you were a person, but you were dead in your sins. God had to bring you out of that death, out of essentially non-existence. To make you alive in Christ. And then I love verses 20 to 25. Again, this wasn't about Abraham being amazing. It was about God and his faithfulness. And about God keeping his promises. It says that his faith was counted to him as righteousness in verse 22. And we're going to look at that a little more specifically in chapter 15 in a couple weeks. And then I love how it says in verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, 
but for ours also. How on earth can something that happened over 4,000 years ago to some guy who we probably have no idea what he even looked like, you know, we don't have any idea what the land looked like at the time, what, what was going on. Four, I mean, think about that. 4,000 years ago? That's crazy, right? How can this guy who lived 4,000 years ago and trusted God, how can that have anything to do with our lives today? How can that be relevant for us today? Well, maybe it's because we are needy sinners just like Abraham was. Maybe it's because we fail to see how God is going to pull through as he has promised. How God is going to provide for us. How God is going to protect us. How God is going to lead us to the promised land. It's because we're too focused on the here and now. We're too focused on the physical things about descendants and land and blessings. You know, I think there was something eerily prophetic about Dr. King's speech 50 years ago. Speaking of being on the mountaintop, of seeing the promised land, of not worrying about anything or fearing any man because his eyes had seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Have our eyes seen the glory of the coming of the Lord? The one who rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday while the crowds cheered, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Who a few days later would be arrested, tried, crucified as a criminal. But who did not stay dead. Who three days later rose from the grave. Paul said what was written about Abraham was written for those of us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Do we believe that today? Do we believe that the promises that God gave to Abraham that were fulfilled in Jesus, do we believe that those are our promises in Christ? Let us embrace our calling as strangers and exiles on the earth. Let us desire a better country, trusting in and waiting for the return of the risen Lord and our blessed hope of eternal life and our true home with him forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your word does speak to us today in all of our situations, in all the things we're going through, that we are reminded of your promises, that we are reminded of who we are in Christ, that this world is not our home, that we can face the trials and the suffering and the temptation in this life because of your grace, because of your spirit that lives inside of us. Lord, would you equip us? Would you give us the faith to follow your call in our lives, whatever it may be, wherever you may call us to go, to do the things that you've called us to do, to trust you, to provide, and to be with us always as you have promised to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.